Let's open our Bibles up to Ezekiel 17:18-19. Ezekiel is a reoccurring different verbiages that are expressing the same message over and over again. And that is that judgment is imminent. He is a contemporary of uh, Jeremiah. What we're going to see in 17 and 18 and 19 tonight again is God once again uh, getting specific, especially in chapter 18, where we're going to get into the the whole idea of personal accountability. And, um, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's just dive right into chapter 17 tonight. Again, Ezekiel is, is using parables, much like the, the Lord did, to get his point across. And as we look at chapter 17, we're going to see symbolism. And I find the symbolism interesting because when you get to the book of Revelation, it talks about two wings of a great eagle, and we often wonder, what's it referring to? And uh, as we look to the Old Testament, a lot of the times it's explained to us, and we can connect the dots from Ezekiel, even to the book of Revelation, that yes, there's symbolism, uh, definitely in the book of Revelation, no doubt about it. In Revelation chapter 12, it talks about a fiery red dragon that was ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. And that's all it tells us. But then, when you read verse 9 of chapter 12, it says, um, the serpent, the devil, that fiery red dragon. So in verse 9, it explains verse 3 very, very clearly that the symbolism that's there is explained in the same chapter. Well, sometimes it's not explained in the same chapter. And a lot of times, uh, especially the book of Revelation, I don't believe you can understand it unless you have a real good grasp of the book of Daniel because of the symbolism that's that's used there. So in chapter 17, we have um, the parable or the riddle of the the two eagles. And um, one is going to be a clear reference to Nebuchadnezzar. I'll tell you right out of the get-go, that's who who we have in view here. And the other one um, uh, is going to refer to Big mistake that Zedekiah made in making an alliance with Egypt and breaking his alliance with Nebuchadnezzar. So let's dive in and read um, the first couple verses here. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, pose a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel and say, Thus says the Lord God, A great eagle with large wings and long Pions, full of feathers of various colors, came to Lebanon and took from the cedar the highest branches. Uh, He cropped off the topmost young twigs and carried it to the land of trade. He set it in the city of merchants. I'm going to stop right there, just deal with verses, these first five verses here. This great eagle that's being made reference to is none other than um, Nebuchadnezzar and um, the nation of Babylon. Again, this was the whole book of Jeremiah, uh, his single message. Uh, Ezekiel, however, is actually in Babylon. And the people, um, some of the chapters that I apologize for, for missing is uh, chapter 13 is, is a judgment upon the false prophets. That would have been chapter 13. So there were prophets in Babylon, 
that were speaking contrary to what Ezekiel was saying, and um, it was causing confusion. It was causing people to want to hear a positive message rather than a negative one from Ezekiel. But here, he's saying that there's going to be this great eagle, and uh, it it is a reference to um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. If we went back to Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 40, he says basically the same thing, and rather than have you turn there, I'll just quote it. He says, for thus says the Lord, this is Jeremiah 48, for thus says the Lord, behold, he, Nebuchadnezzar, shall fly as an eagle, and he shall spread his wings over Moab. Then in chapter 49 of Jeremiah, he writes, behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle, and spread his wings over Basra. And at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her death pangs. And then in Daniel, Daniel saw the Babylonian empire rising out of the sea, and it was like the form of a lion with eagle's wings. Now that's Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, what we have here is simply a picture, illustration, of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's going to come and he's going to crop off the top of the trees. Well, the top of the tree, the question is, what, who's the tree? Well, it's none other than the nation of Israel, especially those of the royal house of David. Um, and what we have in view here in particular would be Judah's last king, and his name is Zedekiah. So as we begin chapter 17, we have a parable, and um, the These first five verses are basically saying, not only is he going to come out and take out Zedekiah and Jerusalem, but also Basra, Moab, Lebanon, the surrounding areas, um, Babylon, uh, when you study the book of Daniel, is one of um, the seven um, world empires that would have a world reigning domination. There's, there's been six so far, and the seventh is on the horizon. And it goes back to Egypt, would have been the first one. The Assyrians would have been the second one. And then remember the Assyrians, how they came to their end. They were attacking Jerusalem, and one night, one angel took out 185,000 Assyrians. And the king hightails it back to his capital, but he's killed by his sons. So much for the Assyrian Empire. Destroyed in one night. Then you have the Babylonian Empire, and they're on the rise right now. So as we look at Ezekiel, they're the dominating power who is going to exercise its conquest, and it's actually in the process of uh, this world-dominating feat, and it's going to be under the headship of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, Babylon, like the Assyrian Empire, fell in one night. And we find that in in the book of Daniel where um, the famous hand came out and the writing was on the wall. It says you've been weighed into balance. Your kingdom has been divided and it's been given to the Medes and the Persians. So now we have the next empire. And that would have been under people like Darius and Cyrus, Medes and the Persians. But they would fall to the next world empire which would be... um, Alexander the Great and the Grecians. Um, He had conquered the world by the age of 33. 
and then only to be replaced by the powerful Roman Empire um, that, you know, sort of fizzled out. Nobody really conquered it. it. It fell from within. But Daniel clearly talks about a revived Roman Empire that is yet still future. So as we watch current events, uh, the Bible still tells us that there's going to be a one-world leader, the Antichrist. He's going to rule over the revived Roman Empire. So the way I look at it and the way I think out of it, the Lord nailed all six of them exactly like he said, and it's no time to be doubting that number seven isn't going to happen. Good time for an amen. It's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it from happening. So where we find ourselves as we make our way through God's word is this eagle, and he's on a mission, and he's going to clip off the branches of, uh, of Israel. He's going to take Moab, Boab, and um, he's even going to take Egypt, and that brings us, let's read down to verse uh, 6 and 7 here. We'll get to the, the second eagle. And it says, And he grew and he became a spreading vine of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots were under it, so he became a vine, brought forth branches, and put forth roots. But there was another great eagle with large wings and many feathers, and behold, this vine bent its roots towards him. Now what we have here, remember, he's telling a story, a parable. And basically what's happening is this other eagle is Egypt, um, would have been a great power at the time. But what the king of Judah did is he broke his covenant that he had made with Nebuchadnezzar, and he makes a covenant, a big mistake, and the idea of bending his branches towards this other great eagle, the other great eagle is Egypt. Uh, The vine is planted in the soil of Egypt, seeking to draw strength from her. So Zedekiah's thinking is, we're in trouble, and we need help. And instead of going to the Lord, I mean, <laughs> I think of all the places you so saw, you want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to where it all started from, where you're delivered from, and that's where you're going to get your help from? Gang, there's a whole Bible study right there. And um, uh, basically, what is being said here is that this other eagle that Israel is going to turn to is a, is a is a plant in Egypt, and um, but there's no strength because Egypt is also going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and um, he's going to make Egypt subject to himself again. Babylon will be by the time uh, we're through with um, Ezekiel, the dominating world power that is foretold in the book of Daniel, which I, by the way, am very um, excited and looking forward to because after we get through with the book of Ezekiel, we're headed in, into Daniel. Interesting times, isn't it? We're going to be in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and, uh, in a short period of time, and um, then diving right in right into uh, the book of Daniel. <clears throat> uh, let's pick it up, uh, verse 9. Let's read 9 through 15. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull it up by its roots and cut off its fruit and leave it to wither? All of the springs, leaves will wither, and no great power 
or many people will be needed to pluck it up by the roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? A reference to Babylon. It will wither in the garden terrace where it grew. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, say to this rebellious house. In other words, the message was capitulate. Don't fight the word of God. Uh, You're being disciplined. Uh, We talked about the many sins last Sunday of why God is bringing judgment on them. He's not going to change his mind. They're going to be in a woodshed for 70 years. End of discussion. But again, you have the false prophets, mixed messages, making false alliances with places like Egypt. And the Lord says, I'm just going to pluck them up like a vine. And uh, like the wind is just going to blow them over. And it's because of their rebellion. Uh, verse 12, do you not know that what these things mean? Tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its kings and princes and led them with him to Babylon. Now, this would be a reference. Again, I've repeated it several times. This was not a one-time attack on, on Jerusalem, and it fell. There was three different attacks, and um, we're past two entering into three. The first one, this reference here where it says where he's taking kings and princes, the first one is when Daniel went. And um, Nebuchadnezzar, he sort of wanted the cream of the crop. He wanted the best. He wanted them to be trained in administrative roles uh, and take advantage of uh, the best that uh, Jerusalem had. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they went with it. The second siege is when we find that um, some of the temple treasures were, were taken, but the city wasn't yet completely destroyed. Verse 13, and he took the, the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, and put him under path. He also took away uh, the mighty of the land. That the kingdom might be abased and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. Now, uh, this is a, a, a reference, again, where he's coming after Zedekiah. But he rebelled against him. Now, the he there is King Zedekiah, and he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he sends ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? That's put, put in the form of a question. Uh, will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? In other words, the Lord says, I've spoken it. It's over. It's a done deal. Are you going to go to Egypt? Are you going to try to get them to... Um, come and fight for you. As I live, says the Lord, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. So he broke his covenant with Babylon. He seeks to make an alliance with Egypt, but it will not stand. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war. When they heap up a siege mound and and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, and in fact gave his hand, and still did all things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, 
as I live. Surely my oath, which he despised, and my covenant, which he broke, I will recompense on his own head. So all the scheming that Zedekiah is doing, looking for help in Egypt, he's saying, I've already spoken. I've given my oath. Nothing's going to change it. And um, it's an exercise in futility if you guys think you're going to go down to um, Egypt for your strength or your help. Verse 20, I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for the treason which which he committed against me. That's exactly what happened. And his fugitives with his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. Now, I've mentioned this over and over again, but that's how we learn. This occurs, this phrase, then they shall know that I am the Lord, occurs some 52 times in the book of Ezekiel. For thus says the Lord, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of the young twigs, tender ones, and will plant it on a high mountain, on a prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth uh, boughs and uh, bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. And under it will dwell birds of every sort, in the shadow of branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high trees and exalted the low trees, dried up the green trees, and made the dry trees flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I, the Lord, have done it. So as we look at these verses here, um, sometimes God allows a godless uh, nation to harass and actually destroy a people who claim to be God's people, and that's basically what's happening here. These were supposed to be God's people. But they have um, turned away from the Lord. And again, if go back to just last Sunday's message where we talked about the sins of Sodom. We mentioned, you know, weeping for Tammuz and worshiping the sun god actually offering their children to Moloch, burning them alive. And it it had gotten worse than the nations that were there before them. And the Lord had to bring judgment. So I have to ask the question, how much different in our country are we than than, um, ancient Israel? where in many ways we um, talk about the Lord maybe, and yet when it comes right down to it, just mentioning abortion, over 58 million and counting since Roe v. Wade since um, 73, and we think the Lord's going to look the other way. The sins of Sodom. Um, I, growing up as a young man and, you know, Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, if you would have asked me what a homosexual was, uh, I was, I don't know. <laughs> What's that? I had no idea. Well, we've gone from that to the, uh, the Supreme Court acknowledging and endorsing same-sex marriage, and now we have mandatory teaching, in, not in all schools, but in some, where 
six and seven year olds are, are forced to sit in the class trying to identify their sexual identity. And I go, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. And yet we see it happening here and we wonder how long, you know, will the Lord be patient uh, in dealing with us as a nation. I think there's a lot of confusion right now because nobody was expecting um, to um, see uh, Trump come into office. There's a lot of optimism right now, I think, in the country. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, Joe Bell, and uh, he called me up because he was on a way to a meeting to discuss what Mr. Broderson is doing with the Calvary Church split. He says, Dwight, I'm headed into a meeting, but but I really want to talk to you a little bit about it. So we talked for about a good hour, I think. And um, we were talking about the president's and he says, oh, by the way, I know Pence. I said, you know Pence? And he goes, yeah, he's the real deal. He's, he's, he's a real Christian. He's from Indiana, and jo- my friend Joe's from Indiana. And um, we got talking about Trump, and I, we like a lot of his policies, but make no mistake about it, every president that I can ever remember has said they're a Christian. Right? Well, Trump isn't a Christian, and we shouldn't be naive about that. Is he going to implement probably a lot of good changes? Yeah. That's why I came back from Israel. If Hillary would have won, I'd still be in Israel. <laughs> that was the deal. I told our guide that. I said, well, it's a good thing. I was watching the TV at three, five, 5 o'clock in the morning. I thought, good, I get to go home. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't imagine such a thing. Well, so now you know where I stand on that issue. <laughs> Chapter 18. Um, now we're going into a, a parable. This is probably, this is where we're going to be headed on Sunday. And um, there's more doctrine in Chapter 18 that's pertinent and relevant to the church today that if you understand Chapter 18... And what it's saying here about personal responsibility and free will, it will nip in the bud what's creeping into the church today as far as this new Calvinism and Reformed theology, um, which basically brings in the doctrine of predestination. And if you're a five-point Calvinist, that means you really have really no choice in the matter. You're either predestined to go to heaven or you're predestined to go to hell. And there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. Well, chapter 18, and we'll spend more time in this in more detail on Sunday. Um, it goes back to a, a proverb that comes from the book of um, Deuteronomy. So in chapter 18, let's re- read uh, the first three verses here. The word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb? Concerning the land of Israel, saying, Well, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And uh, as I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel, for behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the father, as well as the soul of the son is mine, and the soul who sins shall die. And so we have a whole lot of theology coming up and doctrine in this particular chapter. Uh, the children of Israel had this proverb, and it's not only mentioned here, it's mentioned in Jeremiah 31, 29, 
I'll quote it without you having returned there. It says, <clears throat> in those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And then in my cross-reference here, it actually quotes Lamentation 5 or 7, where it says our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquity. I believe the people had built this proverb upon a passage back in the book of Exodus. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So evidently where this proverb came from was back from the book of Exodus. But as McGee correctly points out here, this is, you can't build a doctrine, you gotta keep it in context. And this verse from Exodus, and I'm quoting McGee here, says the problem is that the proverb they drew from this verse is incorrect. And that's the danger in lifting out one verse of scripture without considering its context. This is a false proverb. The father ate the grapes and the children paid the penalty. That's not true. That is um, uh, where we're going to go where the Lord says, enough already. Don't say that anymore. Because fathers ate sour grapes that had an effect on the children. And then he makes it clear that um, what makes us unique as human beings is that we have a spirit and a soul. And the Lord says, all souls are mine. All souls are eternal. All souls will spend either an eternity in heaven or an eternity in outer darkness. You are eternal. There's no getting away from that or around from that. To um, have the mentality, when I die, it's all over. That's it. That's the end of it. No, ask the, the rich man in, in Luke chapter 16. Um, after he died, it says he was buried and he found himself in Sheol and he was tormented and extremely conscious and aware of his surroundings. Um, he was aware of a place called Abraham's bosom that existed at that time. Um, it was a place of comfort for those who had died in faith Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, those in the Old Testament. Hebrews said these all died in faith, but they didn't receive the promise. So when Jesus died on the cross, it says as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what's he doing down there? Well, Ephesians 4 says he went down there to set the captives free. There were those that when he, he said he took the keys of death and hell. Boy, would I like to have seen that happen. Walking up to the devil and he says, I'll take those now. They belong to me. And he took the keys to death and hell and he emptied that chamber. How do I know that chamber is emptied? Matthew chapter 27 verse 52 says, after his resurrection, many who were in the grave arose. And they appeared to relatives. Now, how weird of a verse is that? To have your uncle, I'll use my uncle Buck, because I used him in a story the other day. Can I get sidetracked just a little bit because it's deer hunting season? 
<laughs> we were out at Bob and Bonnie's house a couple of days ago. Paul Mall and I were out there. Bob showing off his his uh, his uh, deer heads in his in his office. He's got some nice racks in there, and um, there was a couple of guys out in the woods. We could see them from the window. They had shot a deer, but they're trying to track them down. They couldn't find them. So it was deer hunting talk time. So in my family, on the Crandall side, uh, my favorite uncle, his name is Uncle Buck. Um, he's a farmer. That means he works 365 days a year and because um, cows demand to be milked twice a day. <laughs> And so you're locked into that. And the one thing that he lived for was deer hunting season. And every year, they got their living. I mean, there's 20 deers that are just strung up. And um, we called him Uncle Buck because that's what he, he lived for. And um, the day that he died, it was deer hunting season. And my cousin propped him up in, a, in the front seat of a pickup truck, rolled down the window, put his rifle in his hand so he could rest it on there. And uh, sure enough, a buck came by and he shot it and killed it and then he died. What a way to go, huh? <laughs> it's the only deer hunting story I got, so you know. <laughs> but I thought it was a pretty good one as the guys were talking about their deer hunting stories. But um, how in the world did I get sidetracked on that one? All the souls belong to the Lord and I got sidetracked somewhere, but I thought it was well, I thought it was a good story, didn't you? <laughs> you know, I wonder these hardworking. I have such respect for farmers and uh, their their dedication because uh, that takes a commitment. That takes a real commitment, and it's a lot of hard hard work. And uh, both on both sides of the, of the Dovels and the Crandalls, they were they were both dairy farmers. <clears throat> Okay, back to, back to uh, chapter 18. Um, every soul is eternal. I think that's where we got sidetracked. And we'll, the soul that sins will die. Well, this is the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, when we talk about it in the context here, um, in the uh, with this particular proverb, um, it's true to a certain extent, but God judges the individual, father or son, according to his conduct. And this is important. This is not a judgment that we're reading here for eternal life, but a judgment in the life according as a man obeys or disobeys God. So I don't want you to get the idea that the idea of Romans 1 and two and three are in view here. <clears throat> we're, not, we're not talking eternity. We're talking about human life and the consequences that happens to a man, he will die. All right, verses uh, five. Oh, we'll take it through where it gets, where it gets into personal accountability. Verse five. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, and this is what they were doing, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, we're talking rape, 
not uh, approach a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, in other words, he's got hurt for the poor, and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not extracted usury, nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity, and executes true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and has kept my commandments faithfully, he is just, then the Lord says he will surely live, says the Lord God. So he's making a distinction about those who were really trying to keep the ways of the Lord. Again, I would point out the book of Hebrews where these all died in faith. They did have faith, but they didn't have the full picture. He goes on to say, if he begets a son who is a robber, this godly man, or a shedder of blood who does any of these things and, and does none of those duties but has eaten on the mountains or defiled his neighbor's wife, if he's oppressed the poor and needy, robbed by violence, nor restored the pledge, lifted up his eyes to idols or committed abominations, if he has executed usury or taken an increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he will surely die. His blood will be upon him. Now, where I want to make the connection here, what I want you to see, is we're having a father who's a godly man, but then it says if he begets a son. So now we're talking a family member who is not following his father's example and um, um, personal accountability is what you want to get out of this study tonight. That because you were brought up in a Christian home and you were brought up going to Sunday school, so on and so forth, you have to make your own personal decision. Um, we made, I made the point on Sunday. Bjorn and Jennifer had their uh, little 10-week-old 10, 10 baby dedicated to the Lord. And I went out of my way to point out that we don't practice infant baptism because in the denomination I grew up with, infant baptism is associated with salvation. And now you have something added to God's grace and God's work and that's simply not biblical nor true. I'd take it a step farther and say it's downright dangerous and it gives a false impression. It gives a false security well, I was baptized. Well, so what? You know, what kind of life did, did you live? No, and, and then again, I pointed out that when we were in Israel, uh, we got to see all these bar mitzvahs when we were on the Temple Mount. Talk about a joyous time. I mean, talking about being the center of attention when you're 13 years old, the whole world now revolves around you because you have come of age. You can study the Torah with the, the men um, you have uh, reached that age of what, what I refer to as the age of accountability. I don't know where that line is. I think it's probably, aren't you glad you're not God? You've got to draw a line saying, now you're accountable this day, and this day you're not. <laughs> what the Lord knows. He knows when that time comes, and he says, okay, right here, right now, 
you're, I'm going to hold you accountable for what is right and what is wrong. And we all have a conscience. Good place for an amen, right? I mean, without even being born again, you know it's wrong to steal, right? And you just have that innately in you. Or if you tell a lie. There's something in your conscience that tells you it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to defraud. So here we have a man who did it right. And the Lord says, well, he'll surely live. But now he has a son. And his son does just the opposite. And the Lord says, not this guy. And um, so don't use a proverb, the father has eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Um, implying that it's the, it's the father's fault. No. Here the Lord is clearly saying, you have an individual choice. It doesn't matter if you're brought up in, a, in the best of circumstances or in the worst of circumstances. You reach a certain age and then God holds you accountable with your life and your decisions that you make. And again, we'll, we'll develop this thought more when we get into our study on Sunday. Let's pick it up, oh, in verse, we left off where he will surely die. Let me go back there. Pick it up. Um, if, however, verse 14, he begets a son, and he sees all the sins which his father had done, and notice, and considers, in other words, he thinks it through, but does not do likewise. So now he sits down and he looks at dad and says, dad, you're not doing it right. And he considers it. And he, he says to himself, I'm not gonna go in that direction. But does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor has lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not oppressed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry, he's clothed the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor, and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments, walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. In other words, you, you can't say, well, I'm messed up because my dad was messed up. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a victim and a product of the, the, the house that I grew up in. The Lord's not buying it. You can't say that your fathers ate sour grapes and now it's affected you. This chapter is pointing out one thing very, very clearly. And that is individual choice and that there's no ex- <coughs> excuse, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> no excuses once you reach that certain age, he says, he will not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. Now, as for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? And again, this is what was going around, this proverb. Uh, because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all the statutes that done them, he will surely live. And then this very important verse, verse 20, the soul who sins will die. And we got into this on Sunday in Romans 5. By one man's sin, Adam, 
it affected every human being that ever came into this planet. We had this deadly disease that could only be cured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Another good place for an amen. There's, that's why Jesus is the only way. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. So you can take any other religion, unless it says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him, that's pretty exclusive. Matter of fact, that's pretty narrow, isn't it? And that's exactly what Jesus said. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few, not many, few be there that find it, but broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many will be that find that. So, you know, you guys, you need to know that we're in a minority. We always will be, uh, because we, we teach a very narrow message. And um, I always like it because the Lord says it's not only narrow, but it's difficult. It's not trendy. It's not acceptable. It's not popular. Just like Ezekiel's message was not a pop- popular one. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But, and here we have, you know, God's grace coming in. But if a wicked man turns from his sin, which he has committed, and keeps all my statute, and does what is lawful and right, he will surely live and she, he shall not die. Well, here's a guy who did it wrong for a while. He got caught up and he, he, he's, he's like the, the prodigal, you know. Um, he spends all his money on partying and, and uh, prostitutes and, and ends up in a pig pen. But the Bible says he came to himself. And he goes, this is crazy. I'm in a pig pen eating corn husks. I mean, my dad's servants are better off than I am. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. I'm going to say, Dad, I blew it big time. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. Just let me work as a hired hand, and I'll be a happy man. And the father would have none of it. He saw his son coming from a distance, and when he saw him, he gave the order, kill a fatted calf, get the robe, get the ring. We're going to have a party. Because my son, who is dead, is alive again. And so we have this happening here. And that's many of us. Many of us uh, lived a carnal, fleshly lifestyle. And by God's grace, somehow he got our attention, sent that person into our life. And, um, you know, we did a 180 and said, Lord, please forgive me. I blew it big time. And what he, this is telling us here, that when you do that, and he turns, none of the transgressions which he had committed shall be remembered against him. Now, this is, a, this is the greatest news in the world. They not only forgives the sin, but then God can do something that I can't do, and that he has the ability as a God to forget if he wants to. And he says, I will remember him no more. Let me just say a word about this. There are people who have transgressed badly. And they really think that God didn't hear them the first time when they repented of a sin that they did maybe 20 years ago. And so they're continually going forward for altar calls. They're continually confessing the sin. And um, 
what's biblical in this area is the Lord is saying, what are you talking about? I don't remember that. When he says, I will remember them no more, what does that mean in the Hebrew and Greek? I will remember them no more. And that's what he chooses to do. And that's the grace of our God. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? The Lord takes no pleasure in bringing judgment upon rebellious man, says the Lord God. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness which he is guilty and the sin which he uh, has committed because of them, he shall die. Uh, what we have here is some, a picture of somebody who's backslidden, knew the truth, walked in the truth, and decided to walk away from the truth and go back into the world. And um, there's a lot of theology in what I just read as it, it, it applies to the whole issue that we'll be dealing a little bit more with on Sunday. And I'll just leave it there for now. Verse 25, and yet you say the way of the Lord is not fair. Well, then hear now, house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your way which is not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself and uh, alive because he considers and turns away from all the transgression which he committed. Notice the word considered, implying free will. He thought it through. He made a choice. He shall not die. Yet, the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my way which are fair and your ways which are not? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that the iniquity will not be uh, your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. This is what happens when a person is born again. Uh, he, he gets a new heart and he's born a second time by the Spirit. Why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. I would sum this up by saying, isn't that reasonable? Isn't that logical? Doesn't it make perfect sense? This whole chapter just lays out, and it begins with the the chapter that um, uh, you're accountable and don't ever say the, fa- the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. No. That's a false proverb. And what the fact of the matter is, is each, each one of us is accountable for ourselves. All right, brings us to chapter 19. Chapter 19, we have basically 
what we would call two lamentations. You can, if you're taking notes, it's not very long. Um, the chapter is divided in two. Um, the first lamentation is over the princes of Israel, the verses one through nine, again, if you're taking notes. And uh, the second lamentation is over the land of Judah, the southern kingdom itself, verses 10 through 14. And um, let's pick it up and we'll read the first nine verses. Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. What is your mother, a lioness? She lay down among the lions. Among the young lions, she nourished her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion. And he learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him, and he was trapped in their pit. And they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. Um, this is a, a reference to um, Jehoiachin, and um, what, who would have been one of the uh, last kings. And when she saw that she waited that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion, and he roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. He knew their desolate places, and laid waste their cities. The land was, with its fullness, was desolate, but the noise, by the noise of his roaring. Then the nations set against him from the, the province on every side, spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit, and they put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. Now this is, a, again, a reference to Jehoiachin, which would have been um, uh, the last three kings. Jehoiakim is confusing because they sound so familiar. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and the last one is Zedekiah. Uh, But this is actually what took place, a judgment against the princes. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. So, fact of history, that's what we have in view here. The last four verses is a lamentation over the land of uh, Judah uh, itself. And um, let's read this. It says, "Your, your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. She had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towed and statued, she towered and statued above the thick branches, and was seen in her height and the dense foliage. But she was plucked up in fury, and she was cast down to the ground. And the east wind dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them, and now she is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and a thirsty land. Fire has come out from a rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. Turn with me to, uh, as we close tonight, to 
Luke chapter 19. Because uh, in this parable here, we have again these, a lament. A lament is, is weeping. Weeping over the rebellion of these last three kings. They would not listen to God's prophet. They would not listen to Jeremiah. They would not listen to Ezekiel. And now the consequences. They looked for help in Egypt, but uh, none there. And then the parable of the withered vine is uh, uh, the sad demise of um, really the book of Lamentation, the lament, the mourning over the sad song depicting the history of the nation. And that's pretty much how chapter 19 ends, but let's turn to Luke chapter 19, and we see the same lament taking place. The idea of our study tonight, gang, is they should have listened. They had free will. They could have exercised it any way they wanted to. They could have done the right thing. They could have listened to Jeremiah. They could have listened to Ezekiel. They chose not to. The consequences, the nation fell. Uh, They were taken into captivity for the next 70 years. And it's a lament and a weeping uh, because they simply wouldn't listen. All right, let's fast forward to scriptures that we'll close with tonight that you're very, very familiar with. Talk about a roller coaster ride of emotion. The Messiah finally comes in Luke chapter 19. We call it the triumphal entry. And they're quoting Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There's great joy, Hosanna, save now. And they were throwing their, um, well, we read in verse 37, as he drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of the descendants began to rejoice. Praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. This Jesus of Nazareth and um, his legacy for the last three years from his first miracle of turning the water into wine in um, John chapter two to his last miracle that had just happened where he rose Lazarus from the dead. He's coming from Bethany from that event. Um, The Pharisees have a problem on their hand. They were there. They knew he was dead for four days. And you'd think, I'm getting saved. This guy can raise people from the dead. That's not what they did. They went back and said, we have a problem. We not only have to kill Jesus, but now we have to kill Lazarus too because he's a walking witness. <laughs> Talk about being dead and coming back to life. We, we use that sort of terminology. You know, I once was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now I'm alive and so on. Well, this is literal. So the last, I mean, could you imagine the buzz in Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives? So here comes the Lord, And they're rejoicing. Why? Because of all the mighty works that Jesus had done. They had heard it all. Walking on the water, healing the blind man, feeding the 5,000, on and on and on for three years. That's his testimony. Oh, they have no doubt. He's the Messiah. But then you get to verse 41. As Jesus drew near the city, 
he began to weep over it. And so now we have a, another lament over the very same city that Ezekiel was lamenting over because they wouldn't listen. And Jesus says, if you had only known, even especially in this year day, the things that may have made for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You wouldn't listen to Daniel. And he quotes um, Daniel here. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you in, and close you in on every side. This is a prophecy that was fulfilled 38 years later in 70 AD when the 10th Roman legion under Titus came in and did exactly that. And level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Implying Daniel clearly told them that this was the day. That day, April 6th, 32 AD was the day that the religious leaders should have been preparing their people for and saying the Messiah is here. And one of the things that we gotta look for is some guy who's riding a donkey that's never been ridden before. And that's what happened in the first couple verses here. And then the quoting of the Messianic Psalm that only could be fulfilled by Jesus instead of uh, the Pharisees rejoicing They command that Jesus rebuke his followers because they think he's the Messiah. The Lord said, sorry, can't do it because this is the day. This is the day and now it's hidden from you. So what does he do? Once again, lamenting and weeping over Israel. Um, I'm at my time. I'd love to jump into Revelation right now and talk about another, uh, what's gonna be, Uh, coming down the pike, I think, shortly as we try to stay in the cutting edge prophetically as we make our way through the scriptures, and we see it repeating itself over and over again. But it's only 8 o'clock, and i got five minutes, and I don't know what to do, so let's stand up and pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight, and actually keeping me on time. Miracles really do happen. So, Lord, we thank you as we make our way through your word, and um, help us, Lord, Be wise with the decisions and the choices that we make, knowing that you're watching and that um, you're aware of everything we say, think, and do. We can't make excuses. We can't blame anybody else. We are accountable for our own actions and our own decisions. And your word in Ezekiel clearly lays that out for us tonight. But we thank you for the absolutes. And we thank you for your word so much. So bless your people as we go out tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.